Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, let's uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get going. We've got plenty to cover. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, tonight. We thank you for everybody who's shown up uh, tonight and for the beautiful uh, day we've had, the beautiful weather. Uh, thank you for the sunshine and the rain as well. Um, we're grateful to be going through the Route 66 study, getting uh, an exposure, a broad exposure to your word. We pray, Lord, that you continue to use this study and make it effective in our lives to have a, a better grasp of what's in your word, um, how it's organized, how it's structured, how it's put together. We pray especially tonight as we uh, talk about this issue of uh, prophecy and the prophetic ministry, we pray that... Um, uh, you'd help us to get a deeper appreciation of what you call the prophets to be and to do. Thank you again for the time we have together. Uh, please bless everything that goes on here and also in the Iwana group as well. Just pray that those, uh, those kids would really soak up your word and uh, hide it in their hearts and learn. And that you convert many of them, uh, bring them to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So tonight I'm giving you uh, an introduction to the latter prophets, and they are distinguished, uh, latter prophets in, uh, in, in distinct, distinction from the former prophets. Um, this is gonna set up, this uh, instruction tonight's gonna set up the next few weeks of study in Route 66. Uh, we're gonna be off next week, next Wednesday, to set up for the women's conference, but after that, there are gonna be uh, some lessons on Isaiah, a couple weeks of lessons on Isaiah one on Jeremiah, and then one on Lamentations. And then that brings us to the Awana Awards Night. Uh, so we won't meet here for the Awana Awards Night, uh, the banquet there on May 10th. And then I believe, if I'm, unless I'm mistaken, I think we're not going to be doing Route 66 over the summer. That's correct. Okay, yeah, so we're gonna be taking a break during the summer for other church fellowship activities and such. So we're only really gonna just dip our toe into the some of the latter prophets and really tonight uh, since we didn't do an overview of the former prophets tonight's going to kind of be an introduction to the prophets uh, former and latter so we'll talk about all that tonight so let's get into this discussion of the latter prophets and uh, as I said uh, we didn't provide an introduction to the former prophets but we'll kind of cover all that tonight uh, one in one big uh, ball of Wax, yarn, whatever. Uh, we're gonna do it together. One big enchilada, one big burrito. I'm hungry. All right. So I want to start tonight. As you can see, I've, get, I've given you a little uh, uh, outline to go through uh, on your sheet there. I want to start with defining and clarifying the nature of prophecy and the role of the prophet. Hebrews 1.1, uh, most of us are familiar with that text. It says, long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Uh, so that, you know, was such a vital role in Israel's history, this role of the prophets. So we're going to get a definition of prophets and prophecy. And let's begin with a question here. This is where you interact. What is a prophet? What does a prophet do? What is a prophet? What does a prophet do? Foretells future events. Foretells future events. Okay, good. Charlene's got uh, part of the answer there. Just speaks God's word. Speaks God's word. Okay. 
So is it always foretelling future events? No. What else? Foretelling. Okay, foretelling. Yeah, that's, I, I like to make that distinction too. Foretelling and foretelling. And most of prophetic ministry was actually foretelling. Um, speaking forth the word of God rather than foretelling. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot that's, we, when we think of prophecy and we think of something that's prophesied, we often think of future, uh, telling the future. Uh, I'm not a prophet, but this is what I think is going to happen. We, we refer to it a lot in that way because that's kind of the remarkable supernatural nature of prophetic ministry. But there's also a real practical part of prophetic ministry that is telling forth the word of God calling people to repent, uh, instructing people, indicting people for their failure to observe God's word, warning people. That was a lot of prophetic ministry. Um, do you guys, there are sheets on the back if you didn't get them coming in, so you can grab those. Um, okay, I think we got everybody good. So um, what does a, so a prophet is someone who foretells or forth tells God's word. Um, let me give you a couple definitions from a couple Bible dictionaries. Unger's Bible dictionary said a prophet is one who is divinely inspired to communicate God's will to his people and to disclose the, disclose the future to them. So that kind of has both of those ideas in mind. John Davis, a dictionary of the Bible, says a prophet is an authoritative and infallible teacher of God's will. From the Unger definition, I like the, the use of the words communicate God's will and disclose the future. What I differ with in Unger's definition is, and what I want to make really clear, is that he said it's one who is divinely inspired to communicate. And I, I want to differ with that a little bit and say that it's not the prophet himself who is divinely inspired, like that's an inspired person. Rather, it's his prophecies. It's the words that proceed from his mouth those are what are divinely inspired. So Peter made that clear in 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy of, uh, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's only expressing there what prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel had both said. Uh, both of them are latter prophets, by the way, in that category. But they warned the people about false prophets. Jeremiah 23, 16, God said, uh, says, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. So that's the key with the prophet ministry, the prophetic ministry is it's the mouth of the Lord is speaking through this human instrument, this vessel, and the words of that are in the mouth of the Lord are going through this human instrument and going through that mouth out to people. So it's the words themselves that are divinely inspired, not the prophet, as opposed to the false prophets who are speaking visions of their own minds. They're inspired, but inspired by a false spirit, okay? Again, through Ezekiel, uh, God said this in Ezekiel 13, 2 to 3, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying, and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. So that was Peter's concern as well. He wanted to warn the Christians in the early church, in the apostolic times, before the canon had been uh, completed, the New Testament canon was completed, recognized, assembled. 
He said, No true prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then he continues with a similar warning that sounds Old Testament-like. He said, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So the prophet himself is one who spoke from God. Uh, the content of his speech, his prophetic speech, was guaranteed pure accurate and infallible by the Holy Spirit who in Peter's words carried him along so he was he was a vessel he was a conduit but it's God by the Spirit who carried him along and guaranteed what came out of his mouth that came from the Lord uh, was pure accurate and fallible so what came out of a prophet's mouth or you could say some of the writing prophets not every prophet was a writing prophet uh, but the ones who wrote scripture, what was written with their pen, that was infallible revelation from God. That's what I like about uh, John Davis's um, definition. The terms authoritative and infallible are in his definition. I really like that. He said a prophet is an authorita authoritative and an infallible teacher of God's will. So again, just think of a prophet, biblically speaking, a true prophet, as a living human conduit of special revelation okay can anyone here and perhaps uh one of you men who's been to that uh, the stm studies on saturday morning can you make a distinction for us between general revelation and special revelation what's the difference between general revelation and special gary general revelation is for everybody it's like nature it's like the sun it's like the laws of gravity and so we can all pick up on that but for salvation, you need special revelation from God to specially teach you the truths of, of God and Godhead. Okay, um, so yeah, that's that's very helpful. Who else can add? Yeah, Chuck. Uh, and today, special revelation is only through the Word of God, the Bible. Okay, so we find it in the Word of God, the Bible. There's something that you said that I really want somebody else to key in on. What is the distinction between general revelation and special revelation. And it's one term that you used. Is it Doug. words? Words, yes, exactly. So in general revelation, Psalm 19, there are no words, their voice is not heard. But in special revelation, words, okay? So in general revelation, that's the, uh, we used a, a definition from Demarest uh, in our study. General revelation is the divine disclosure to all persons at all times and in all places by which humans come to know that God is and what he's like. That kind of revelation has to do with, like Gary said, what can be observed about God from the creation. So you look at the language of Romans 1.20, it's what can be observed about God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, which are, by everyone, universally, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. All that general revelation does for fallen humanity is to render mankind without excuse. Um, because they owe God honor and gratitude, which Romans 1 says they refuse to give him. Um, and uh, so God, he spoke to mankind using words. He disclosed himself by what we call special revelation. That has to do with God disclosing truth to man through words. So no words in general revelation whether it's we're talking about what's in creation or what's in conscience or even the law of God written on the heart is just a sense we have of morality of right and wrong. And that's 
in every man and woman. Everybody who's born has that. Um, so it's universal in that sense, and yet the words only come through special revelation. So, general revelation, truth about God, where words are absent, special revelation is truth about God, where words are present, not only present, but required, okay? Um, so that's the prophetic ministry is to, is, it deals in that whole realm of special revelation. God disclosing himself, the self-disclosure of God, to mankind through words, and it came through prophets, as Hebrews 1.1 says. Now, a few questions about <clears throat> prophets and prophecy. Uh, this is more like, a, these aren't especially profound questions uh, or answers, but it'll, they'll help you in your next game of uh, Bible trivia pursuit, uh, especially <laughs> in the prophetic category. Um, so anybody know the first person in scripture to re be referred to as a prophet? Mark knows, he's nodding. That's true. Yes. Is it Moses? No, it is not. Begins with the name. Noah. Noah. No. Was it Abraham? It is Abraham. Yeah, because he was. Reference. Uh, well, it's in Genesis. Yeah. you're closer than the rest of us. There's something earlier than Genesis? No, no, no. no. There's a quote of the yeah. prophets Abel, Abel to Zechariah, I believe it was, and he and he calls Abel a prophet. Mm -hmm. That is true. Okay, so um, that that is true. So I was not going to say Abel um, because I was I was actually thinking in terms of like first listed in the Bible. Yes, but it is true. So we can go in either direction with this. But it, it, it's Abraham who's listed in, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 20. Um, uh, God says, he's a prophet. You leave him alone. You leave his wife right. alone. Right. Yeah. So that was, I think, with Abimelech. But uh, um, so. What's that? Split the points. <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually like Mark answer, Mark's answer better. I think that's. Uh, <laughs> that's it that's does really, say that. It does. Uh, Absolutely right. It's great. But it's the way I ask, the way I ask the question though, the first person in scripture to be referred to as a prophet. So where are you gonna uh, is the referral in scripture? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Gotta exegete my uh, my notes here. Alright. So who's the first who's the first female to be called a prophetess? Was that Deborah? No, but good guess. Thinking Miriam. 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 No, yeah, Miriam. Miriam. Yeah. yeah, Miriam. That's Exodus fifteen twenty. Do um, <laughs> not Genesis. No. It's not before Genesis either, like Mark wants to say. <laughs> do do all prophets? <laughs> Very <laughs> we'll stone him after class. Do all prophets write uh, write scripture? No. no. Okay. So, can you give me some names from Israel's history who were bona fide prophets, but they didn't write any scripture that we know of? Elijah. Elijah. Yeah. Good. Elisha. Elisha. Okay. Who else? Um, well, Miriam didn't write anything. Okay, good. Well, well she did some words of hers are written down, but <laughs> yeah. she didn't actually pen them. Right. All right. She sang them. She sang them. Yeah. Anybody else? Barak. 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 Bar
No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, Obama. <laughs> um, I'm not. I don't remember yeah, the reference on that. I was trying to think of who was prophet. He was a judge. No, yeah, that's right. Uh, Nathan. Yeah, Nathan and uh, Gad. Gad. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, yeah, there's some others, but those are the. Yeah. Okay, so who is considered the greatest Old Testament prophet? Elijah or Moses? Elijah or Moses? Which one? Moses. Moses. Yeah. What did Jesus say? Who's the greatest? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Yeah. Yeah. That is still New Testament. That would still be Old Testament, though, wouldn't it? It's still Old Testament. Yep. But um, but really, the point of the question isn't to trip you up. But yes, it was. Um, but it's really it really is um, going to Moses. It really is. But G Jesus did say. Um, he says uh, he began to speak of it to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No, 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 you didn't go out to see that, any of that stuff. He said, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So truly I say to you, among those born of women there is written, arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So, um, Jesus, is he talking about the prophetic ministry there? He says no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Is he what position? is he talking about his position? He's talking about his position as relative and, and really his ministry as the forerunner to Jesus Christ, uh, the Messiah. But really, you know, the point I want to bring us back to is that Moses really is uh, truly acknowledged as greater than any of the Old Testament prophets. Okay, so from a, from an Old Testament perspective, even in John the Baptist's day, if you ask that question, without a doubt, everybody's going to acknowledge that Moses is the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Especially <clears throat> um, when you think of the transfiguration of with Christ but as uh, I think Doug was mentioning Elijah showed up there as well um, but but even even Elijah points back to Moses and this is kind of what we want to get into in a, in a little bit in our third point but um, God said this about Moses and this is when Aaron and Miriam um, opposed him over marrying that Cushite woman in numbers 12 6 to 8 he says hear my words if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Uh, kind of refers or reminds you of Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, right? Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house, and with him I speak mouth to mouth clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Oh, <laughs> you know, um, so Moses, there was something definitely special and particular about Moses before Israel. It was set apart even from and distinguished from all other prophets who came after him. So just to highlight again, coming back, the nature of pro prophets and prophecy in this first point here is to emphasize. I just want to emphasize those key elements of the definition. Prophets are authoritative teachers of God's will. You think of them that way. You can think of them as human conduits of God's self-disclosure using words. Um, I know sometimes prophets did, um, 
you know, act things out. Um, so there were, there were sometimes, you know, uh, was it Ezekiel dividing the hair and all that kind of stuff and putting up a brick and laying siege against the brick and all that. There were some of those things going on, but generally we're talking about God's self-disclosure using words. They communicate God's will, disclose the future to God's people, and what they say or write, so we're talking about the product, what comes out of their mouth or what is written down, what they say or write uh, from God is infallible, it's authoritative, because it's God's inspired word, okay? So with that bit of definition, let's identify these people biblically, and I wrote down in your paper there, prophet, seer, men of God, man of God. The Bible, the, just to identify biblically, the prophets, um, the Bible calls them prophets, nabi in the Old Testament, prophetes in the New Testament. Both those words are related to verbs for speaking. They're also called seers in the Old Testament. Um, not so much in the New Testament, but in, in the Old Testament. Seers, Samuel is called a roeh, and gad is called a choseh. Both words related to verbs for seeing. And I wanted to, to show you that connection in 1 Samuel 9. So if you uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 9, this, uh, this text makes that connection between the prophets and the seers uh, explicit to show that they're really the, one and the same. Um, th this is the, the text where before Saul is chosen as king, uh, he's a son of Kish. And in order to bring Saul into close proximity with the prophet Samuel, and then to bring about Saul's anointing as the first king of Israel, uh, God providentially caused his father's donkeys to wander away. Um, so whenever you think about some inconvenience in your life, just remember sometimes God is orchestrating that for a particular purpose. So Saul took one of the servants with him, go look for the donkeys, and we'll pick it up in verse 5. When they came to the land of Zuf, uh, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city. There's that term. Um, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant again answered Saul, uh, Here, I have with me a quarter shekel of silver. I'll give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Here's this, this note put in by the narrator, put in by the author here. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So you see all those terms, prophet, seer, man of God, connecting uh, there in one person. So that editorial note there in verse 9, it connects those terms and it makes it clear that they all refer to the same person, the same office. In, uh, you can jot down Isaiah 30, 9 to 11, these, you're like, I would, but I got to write on my leg because there's no tables today. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It wasn't my decision. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so Isaiah 30, these identifiers are brought together again there. In This time it's an indictment. God says they are a rebellious people, lying children, chil children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, 
do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Sounds like that could be written today. Mm-hmm. So these prophets, it just that connection was just to show they were, they're called men of God, the Ish Elohim in the Old Testament, Anthrope Theu in the New Testament. Uh, we just read Samuel was known as a man of God. Elisha was called the man of God in 2 Kings 4.9. But it was actually Moses who was designated first with that prophetic title, the man of God. Deuteronomy 33.1, Joshua 14.6, some other passages as well. And the, the only psalm that's actually attributed to Moses, Psalm 90, the title of that psalm is A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. It's referring to his prophetic title. And just a footnote, I, I mentioned that this Man of God title, Ish Elohim in the Old Testament, it's uh, Anthropos Theu or Anthropotheu in the New Testament. Paul is the one who used that term, man of God. And he used it twice, both of them referring to Timothy as the man of God. So 1 Timothy 6.11 and 2 Timothy 3.17. And it makes an explicit connection between the prophetic office in the Old Testament and the pastoral office of the New Testament, putting emphasis on the authority of the role. It's interesting that Paul says that not to Titus or in other letters, but he says it to Timothy, who was a man who was known for his timidity. It's like he's trying to strengthen him in the fact that he has an authoritative role. And he needs to step up to the plate and do his, do his duty, do his role. He wants to encourage him to recognize that authority that's inherent in the pastoral office and not to be set aside as a young man or whatever, but to speak, rebuke, and encourage and correct and all that. So, Old Testament prophets, they're designated as men of God. That's a term that pointed to their character. Uh, These are men of God. That is, they had been set apart by God. They belonged to God. Uh, God used them as instruments to convey his will to his people. Um, God commanded in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 9, go say to this people. So he's, he's, they belong to him. As As a man of God, you know who you're owned by. That's, that's the idea. Amos 7, 14 to 15, Amos answered, said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a son of a prophet, but I was a herdsman, a dresser of sycamore figs, but everything changed. The Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So this is not some kind of an office that they... What's that? What was the Amos reference? Amos 7, 14, and 15. Um, so this was not, was not some kind of a, you know, I just, uh, my grandma always told me that I'd be a great preacher one day and I'm going to go and be a, you know, go and be the man of God. You know, no, it, it was something that God put a mark on a person and said, you are my man. And after, you know, Amos was thoroughly content with being a, a shepherd and a tender of fig trees and all that. He pretty peaceful life. Nope, no more. It's not about you and your peace. It's not about you and your, your sheep and your figs. It's about what I want to do with your life, and you're going to go and do it. And they really didn't have a choice in the matter. They were men of God. So whatever the prophets spoke from God carried the, the weight of divine authority because they were men of God, speaking for God. They're instruments. Um, whatever they said carried the weight of divine authority, and 
um, when we're talking about, uh, like Charlene said, foretelling, telling the future, it also carried the assurance of divine power for a certainty and fulfillment. Um, Isaiah 55, 10 to 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and don't return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater. In the same way, my word shall be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Uh, I, I know a lot of people will take that text out of context and they'll use it as a promise for whatever good they want to see in the future, because God's word says it. But he says, it shall not return to me empty. It sh shall accomplish that which I purpose. And it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Sometimes God sends his word for blessing, and sometimes he sends it for judgment. Sometimes indictment. Sometimes sentence. Which is all through the prophetic ministry. So we'll see that in a little bit. So... It's, it's, his word is effective, and the man of God, speaking the word of God, it's effective. It's going to be useful, not because of the man, but because he's a conduit and a channel through of divine word coming through him. Okay, so Old Testament Hebrew designation, prophet, nabi, referred to the fact that the man is called to speak for God. This comes out in the calling of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 1, 7, 9, the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So Jeremiah was, um, you know, they talk about Jeremiah having no converts. <laughs> was his, was, did he have a successful ministry? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Tough, tough ministry. It wasn't his choice. It wasn't his choice. It was God's choice. Um, turn to Deuteronomy 18. And we're going to get into, start getting into our third point. But Deuteronomy 18. Moses emphasized this fact that God is the one speaking. Uh, as he speaks in Deuteronomy 18, 18. Um, foundational text here in Deuteronomy 18, this prophetic ministry of Moses is the ministry that set the standard for all subsequent prophetic ministry. So every, every prophetic ministry that happened after Moses looked back to Moses, looked back to the law of Moses, okay? And every prophetic ministry was then to be judged as either legitimate or illegitimate on the basis of what they saw in its comparison or contrast to Moses. Um, whether it was true or false, okay? So, let's start here in verse 9, Deuteronomy 18. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or, or, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, 
The Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. The Lord said to me, They are right in what they've spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That's the key verse right there. I'll put my words in his mouth. He's going to speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But a prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. If you say in your heart, how may we know that the word the Lord is um, the wor a word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. In fact, the, uh, at the moment that they stone him, takes away all fear, doesn't it? No more fear of that prophet. So the key there is that God put his words into the mouth of the man he called to be a prophet. And just as it was with Moses, so it would be with this future prophet whom we know is Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Okay? We're going to get into this a little more with uh, Moses and his ministry here, but... We define prophets and prophecy. We've identified them biblically as prophets, seers, men of God. Let's look at the standard for all prophets, the foundation for all true prophetic ministry. It's your third point there, the law of Moses. Um, I didn't leave you very much room there, did I? Mm -mm. Well, just use the white space <laughs> around the edges. And on the back, too, there's a bunch of white space around those charts, so you can use that, too. <laughs> Um, and there's, if there's an empty seat next to you, you have a flat surface on which to write. No problem. Or you can use your friend's back or whatever you'd like to do. Um, it's important as we think about the foundation of prophetic ministry in the law of Moses, it's important to, important to point out that this ministry of Moses, it was, it was foundational to the entire prophetic ministry within Israel. Whether it was to the pre-monarchical Israel, that is a pre-kingship, uh, or to Israel during the monarchy, the united and divided monarchy, or to all the nations. Um, Jonah, Nahum, they prophesied to Nineveh. So all of it was based on the prophetic ministry of Israel. All the prophets who followed Moses were calling God's people back to faithfulness to Moses, to the Mosaic Covenant. That was the nature of their ministry. And that's why we talk about forth-telling. They're speaking forth the word of God, um, certain categories of speaking, but they spoke forth the word of God, but it's all in reference to their obedience or disobedience to Moses. Uh, blessings based on obedience to Moses, curses and warnings based on disobedience to Moses, they all were looking back. Even the prophetic ministry of Jesus the Messiah was to be judged on, on the basis of its fidelity to Moses. Jesus was not some kind of a iconoclastic uh, maverick coming into Israel at the time and, 
and saying, hey, um, it's all about me. I'm totally disconnected. Forget about Moses. There's a complete discontinuity between the old and the new. Here I am, the new. We're going to forget about all that stuff. That was a whole system based on works. I've got a new system based on grace and love and peace. And I'm just here to love all over you. You know, that's not what he was saying. He said, Matthew 5, 17 to 19, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that's the little I, you know, not a dot, jot or tittle, whatever you want, however that's translated, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So be careful in how you speak about the Old Testament, how you speak about the law of Moses. Don't teach people to disobey the commands that are there. I understand that, you know, we're not killing people for, you know, wearing cloth, you know, clothes of, of two different fibers and we can eat shellfish now and there's biblical reason for that. Um, you know, we, all, there are all kinds of things that we need to understand carefully in the law of Moses. Uh, we don't want to make a direct application from what we read to what we see now. We, we, there is some wisdom and discernment on that, but same time, you need to be careful that you don't make a radical discontinuity between the old and the new, as is done in many dispensational circles. Be very careful, okay? This is where uh, some of the covenantal people, even though I'm not covenantal, I want to emphasize that clearly, um, I'm not covenantal, but I do see the continuity that they try to emphasize is important, okay? Yes? Going back to um, Deuteronomy 18:22, is that where a lot of, like, our prosperity gospel comes from nowadays. They misinterpret that to say, well, if it came true, I always said I'd be rich, and then I was. It's must, I must be a prophet, kind of thing. Boy, um, I, think, I think anybody today who wants to be a prosperity prophet and preacher should stay very far away from Deuteronomy 18 and 13 <laughs> because they're really getting close well, to stoning territory. Time, What's that? They pick and choose all the time. They do. That's... Yeah, they do indeed. Um, touch not the Lord's anointed. You know, they, they rip that right out of context. So uh, I, I don't know if it's exactly that. But I think they take blessing promises out of context. They talk about, um, you know, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and that'll be if you just invest and sow some seed into this ministry, God's going to do that for you. And it just they start there, and then they never come back to the Bible after that. But whether they use that or not, I don't know if I've heard it in direct connection. Wouldn't surprise me, but I, I'd recommend they stay away from that. If they want to be a false prophet, they should really stay away from Bible. Really anything in the Bible. <laughs> they do. And they do. They, do. Yeah. <laughs> they just take the pieces. I, yeah, I, the last thing I want to do is give good advice to false prophets. So. <laughs> <laughs> kind of in a dilemma there. How do you? Well, don't you want to tell them to repent? I do. Okay. I do. That's good advice. I'll take them to repentance passages. <laughs> yeah. I'll take them right to Deuteronomy 13, yeah. so actually, Deuteronomy 18. Um, so, just that passage from, uh, from Jesus speaking there in Matthew chapter 5, it's, it's, it's going right back to Moses being the foundation, being the gold standard. He, he's, his prophetic ministry provided the measure, the standard by which everything else is measured. Um, Jesus marked a continuity between Moses and himself. 
And he never throughout his ministry ever wanted to show himself being out of step with Moses. It was very important for him to show he was completely in step with Moses. And he took pains to do that. So um, the emphasis, and, and uh, we, I think we've joked before about red letter Bibles, you know, it, like the red letters, are they more authoritative than the black letters? No, it's all God's letters. And so that's why you can say that for Jesus and Moses to be on par with one another does not diminish Jesus in any way. It's God's word coming through Moses and coming through Christ. It's his, it's just like Deuteronomy 18, 18 says so. Um, so the question is always, did God call this man or not? Did God set this man apart to speak his words or not? And they answered that question all the time by looking back to Moses' uh, prophetic ministry. I want to go back to really what I see is the heart of Moses' prophetic ministry in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So you should be in Deuteronomy 18. should be just a few turns of the pages to go to Deuteronomy 6. Um, <clears throat> Deuteronomy, when we're thinking about um, prophetic ministry, it's one of the most important books in the Old Testament. Because not only does it reiterate uh, the law of Moses, but it does so through the voice of Moses, who is prophesying along the way about Israel's character and their future. He's speaking through, about that all through the book of Deuteronomy. He called uh, Israel to remember and heed the covenant that they had made with Yahweh. That's forthtelling. Um, he predicted what would happen if they didn't obey the words of the covenant they made. That's uh, Charlene forth, foretelling. So the book of Deuteronomy <clears throat> is very important for understanding uh, what's in the heart, at the heart of all prophetic, <clears throat> prophetic ministry, whether we're talking about the, the former prophets or the latter prophets, okay? We'll get to that distinct, distinction in a minute. But after telling people in Deuteronomy chapter 6, after telling them the what and the why of the Lord's dealings with the people of Israel in the first four chapters of Deuteronomy, so Deuteronomy 1.1 1, 1 to 4.43, that's the what and the why of what God is doing Israel and why he's doing it with Israel. Moses comes in chapter 5. He reiterates the Ten Commandments, um, gives some commentary, comes back to chapter 6, and he talks about the heart that is going to drive obedience to those Ten Commandments or obedience to the entire law. And that's what chapter 6 is about. And it starts with distinguishing the true God from idols and then loving that God. Look at verses 4 to 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Let me stop there for a second. <clears throat> it's interesting that <clears throat> the, it says the Lord our God, uh, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Uh, in our theology class, we're getting into talking about the simplicity of God, the unity of God. Some, I mean, right here, we don't, don't make the mistake, this evolutionary mistake of, of, of thinking that people way back when were simple and we're much more complex today and sophisticated. This is profound theology right here in Deuteronomy and, you know, 1500 years before Christ. This is really profound. And they understood. Yeah, that's right. So did they understand it in the same Athanasian way that we did? No, because they didn't have Christ revealed fully to them. But... You see from the very first chapter in Genesis, 
let us make man in our image. There's a plurality of persons that's described or, or hinted at there. There's profound theology here. So it, this God, Yahweh our God, he's one, and he, that's distinguished from all the polytheism of the world around them. So there's a distinction between the true God and all false gods. You can see also this, you shall love the Lord your God, and, and it, then it spells it out, all heart, all soul, all might. Uh, heart, by the way, is um, in the Hebrew mind, it's, it's, it's the thinking. It's the center of all thought life, all will, all, all, all thought, all thinking is there in the heart. Um, and then soul is talking about the whole totality of all your energy and strength in your life. And then all your might, every, every effort you put forth should be in loving the Lord your God. Um, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So deeply embedded in your heart is a distinction of the true God from all idolatry and love for that true God. Distinguishing him and loving him. That's the idea. So... Obedience to the law of Moses in the Old Covenant is the same, you can see. There's a continuity between that and the New Covenant. Obedience and New Covenant. It's an issue of the heart. It's always been an issue of the heart. In that sense, there's a perfect continuity between the Old and the New Covenants, which is the basic assumption with which Christ proceeds in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. He says in Matthew 5, you remember those, the refrain that goes over and over? You've heard that it is said but I say to you. You've heard that it is said, but I say to you. You've heard that it is said from whom? All your teachers, all the scribes, all the Pharisees, they're up here at the surface. But I say to you, and I'm going to go down to the depths of the heart issue. You heard that it is said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, let's go down the heart. That's where, anger, that's where murder starts. So that's the basis on which Christ proceeds. You see the continuity from the Sermon on the Mount right back here to Deuteronomy 6, where it's about loving God and his word with all your heart. It's got to be in your heart. So knowing and loving God would have implications then on how the people would live their lives. There are private implications for the home in verses 7 and 9. There are public implications for the community in verses 10 to 19. And then there's a responsibility to the generations that follow in verses 20 to 25. So look at the private implications. If you love the Lord your God, you're going to distinguish him from all other gods. You're going to love him and his word's going to be on your heart. Look at what this is going to do in your home life. You shall teach them, verse 7, diligently to your children. You'll talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand that shall be a frontlets before your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So it's, this, is, this is going to be your conversation in the home all the time. Um, why? Because you can never get it away from you. It's, it's bound on your hand. Everything you think to do with your energy and your work and your hands, it's the word of God is there guiding everything in your hand. It's, it's as frontlet between your eyes. It is, it's the, the grid or the prism through which you look at life. So, of course, you're going to talk about it with all your kids. It's, it's, it's governing your entire private life. You're going to write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That is, whether you're doing commerce out of, in and out of your gates of your city or whether it's in the door, whatever comes in and goes out of your home, it's all governed by God's word. So that's the private implications. The home life of those who know and love God is going to look very different than the home life, private life of any other people. This is the prophetic ministry. 
This is the heart of that. This is what it emphasizes. Now the public implications. Look at verses 10 to 19. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all good things that you didn't fill, cisterns that you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees you didn't plant, when you eat and you're full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your, in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. That's a, just pause real quick. That's a very important text to show you how the jealousy and the wrath of God is connected. It's actually an expression of his love. It's a counter-expression of his love. We tend to think of the wrath of God as the dark side of God's act. No. That attribute, or that, it's not really its own attribute. It's the attribute of love, and it's expressed in a, in, a, in a jealousy of wanting to bind that person. That's what wrath is. Anyway, so, you shall not put the Lord your God uh, to the test. As you tested him in Massah, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies, his statutes, which he's commanded you, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you. You may go in, take possession of the good land the Lord your God swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. As you read that, what connections do you see in Moses' instruction there? And so far, what we've talked about, verses 4 to 20, uh, 4 to 20 here. Between the people of God in Moses' world and the people of God in today's modern world, what is the same in their situation and ours? What's different between their situation and ours? We're all commanded to keep the law. Okay, we're all commanded to keep the law. That's the same. What else is the same? The peoples around them are much different than they are, or they ought to be. They're to set themselves apart from those peoples so that they can be readily distinguished amongst the non-believers, amongst those who worship the NFL or whatever. Okay. So we're saying um, another similarity is the people of God in that day and in our day were to be very different than the people around us. Well, that's a, starting to get uncomfortable when you say that. indictment now. Isn't yeah. It? yeah, right. But that's very true. Our community, how we live our lives, and it starts in the home, doesn't it? It starts in the heart. It's an expression of the home is to look very different than your neighbors. If you're watching just as much TV as all your neighbors, you should probably say, you know what, I think there's probably a problem in my life. Because I'm looking just like all the people around me. What else do you see uh, similarities or differences between Moses' world and our world? Yeah, Kristen. Um, difference would be that he's promising them uh, a land and prosperity in that land, physical prosperity, whereas in the New Testament we're not promised. Okay. That. Yeah. Our blessings are spiritual blessings. And okay. Future. Good. So there, there are literal physical enemies to drive out, um, and they've got God's sanction to do that. Do we? No. No. That's where there's a discontinuity between Old and New Testament. We need to keep that in mind. Josh would like to. I think he's smiling right now. He's he got some people he wants to stone. I don't think that's a good part, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, you were going to say something. 
kind of along her lines, but on the opposite side is everything I have, God gave me. Everything you have, God gave you. That's actually very true. That's a similarity between us That's and what them. That's on the other side of that. Oh, okay, yeah. That it's same verses, but everything I have, God gave me. I didn't. Right, good. Dig my own well or <laughs> Literal prosperity, though. Literal prosperity here for obedience. You know, Annie, that's actually could be a connection to your prosperity teachers that they'll sometimes take. They're not mine. <laughs> <laughs> for the audio, they are not hers. <laughs> they are teachers out there of other people. <laughs> Those prosperity teachers can take. Uh, passages that are intended to be speaking to Israel and, say, and, and apply them directly to their, themselves without any thought of the continuity or discontinuity of that application. Because there's a theocracy here. Yeah, there's a theocracy here, whereas we don't have a theocracy now. Good. Yeah. We've also been given the Spirit to help us mm -hmm. in our walk. Yep, that's right. New covenant. Um, but it, a similarity should be, in a sense, the binding um, on our hearts. That, the, that we know the Word of God like they knew the Word of God. Like, I'm amazed when we read the New Testament, you've got Jesus alluding to things in the Old Testament, and they readily knew what the illusion was. They knew what he was talking about. Yeah, that's right. So the Word of God, you know, just the expectation of the Word of God being just... You know, what did they say about Spurgeon? You cut his, or John Bunyan. Spurgeon said about John Bunyan, you cut his blood and he bleeds Bible verses. Or he bleeds right. bibline. Bibline, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that ought to be the case for us too. Yeah. So, again, turn off that TV and yeah. open your Bible. Read, 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 memorize. If you need to, go to Awana. It's fine, you know? <laughs> learn learn the Bible verses they're learning. You know, you're, you're in the position of hearing their Bible verses, and you look like the authoritative role, you know, but you're learning them along with them. It's just a, um, one thing I want to point out about a, a connection between their world and ours is that warning in verse 12. It's, a, it's against becoming content with ease, about becoming complacent with comfort, turning to, you know, grab for God's gifts and rejecting his heart um, long, by longing for ease and comfort and pleasure. Their hearts would certainly turn away from fearing God, from serving him. They'd turn instead for whatever God, small g, would, um, they felt would ever deliver the comforts and pleasure that they really loved and wanted. <clears throat> That is directly connected to our world today. They walked into a land to houses full of good things that they didn't fill, um, cisterns they didn't have to dig or work for. You know, digging wells is hard work. Vineyards, olives, trees they didn't plant. And the temptation then would be to eat, be fulfilled, and become in love with ease and comfort and pleasure. And if anything, our modern world has done I mean, I sometimes say this to the kids, that we, with, with driving two or five minutes away, I, we can eat things that kings in the past mm -hmm. never dreamed of eating. Right. And just through fast food drive-throughs, our junk food is sometimes more tasteful and better than what the kings of the past had to eat uh, on their table. So more variety, more, more choice. I, I mean, everything comes to us with such ease. So how quickly can we be just like them? And we need that warning. So um, 
I, I see a huge connection between this section and where we live right now. Mm -hmm. Finally, look at the implications for their responsibility to future generations. When your son asks you in time, verse 20, in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, the rules the Lord our God has commanded you? You shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs of wonders, great, grievous, against Egypt, against Pharaoh, against all his household before our eyes. He brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers as the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day and it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us we see this um Repeatedly, and, and the point I'm making here is there is a responsibility of the godly to future generations. Not to be content with God's blessing in your own time, but to say, I'm concerned for my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids. We, uh, at an elder level, talk about this all the time, that we're actually spending ourselves with, with sacrifice and energy, burning our lives out for a church that we'll never fully enjoy. We're, we're giving ourselves for the church for tomorrow, not for now. I mean, every, every bit of work we do and pour into this church, all the giving, all the energy, all the you know, travail, all the struggle, all, all the, the pain. All the decisions about tables. All the decisions about tables. <laughs> all of it. We're giving ourselves to maybe Christians who are not yet born again, or maybe not even born. That's how we need to think. That's how the godly think. They don't think about just themselves and their own devotions and their own Bible study and how, how much this is bringing a blessing to me right now. That's very self-centered and it's very American. We need to think about ourselves as a community, looking ahead to the future of this community. So not just in um, one, one generation, uh, you see this in biblical history, we also see it in our own time, uh, throughout the ages of church history, a generation can devote itself to fearing and loving God, but then they fail to pass it on to the next generation. So they become like Hezekiah. Um, Isaiah told them about the coming exile that was going to happen uh, because of the people's disobedience to the Mosaic Covenant, to all this. Remember how Hezekiah responded? Lucky, lucky me. Um, he said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you've spoken is good. For he thought, why not? if there will be peace and security in my days. Yeah. Is that wicked or what? <laughs> that is, and, and Hezekiah was a good king. Yeah. <laughs> and yet this is in his heart. Incredible selfishness. That's in direct violation of the spirit of this <coughs> section right here, Deuteronomy 6, 20 to 25. The responsibility that one generation has to the next. So that began to characterize the nation, which is what sent them into exile in Hezekiah's days. But Moses explained to Israel, um, exhorted them to obey its stipulations, and that is the majority of Deuteronomy. As we go from Deuteronomy, end of chapter 4, get into chapter 5, all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And that chapter in Deuteronomy 28 is like Leviticus 26. It's talking about the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. Just, yeah, we got time. We got time. Go to Deuteronomy 28. This is actually, um, let me get some readers. I've been, 
I've been reading a lot. So who would like to read the blessing section? <laughs> All right. What's your name? Scott. Scott. Okay. Read the blessing section. That's going to be verses one to 14. You get the best. So you were the first to raise your hand. So you get the best section to read. Who wants to read the worst um, for bread, of course. <laughs> so read it in your fiery, prophetic, you're going to burn in hell voice. Um, I'll try. You'll try. Um, but read, uh, let's, let's divide this up because it is a long section. And, and don't read quickly. Not so quickly. It's like a Mickey Mouse, you know, voice or whatever. But yeah. Uh, so Brett, read verses 15 to 24. Um, someone else? Can I get another reader? Yeah, Bryce, read to verses 25 to 35. Someone else. All right, Gary, 36 to 44. Um, Lee, 45 to 51. And I'll just see where, Josh, you want to read? Okay, 52 to yeah, blah, 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 50, uh, 63. And then we'll see how we're doing. I may interrupt you and say, okay, enough. But uh, we'll see. Let's start out with Scott over here with the blessings. What? Huh? So what time do you think we go to? We got time. 7.30, right? We got time. All right, go ahead, Scott. Now it shall be, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you will obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd, the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your eating bowl. Blessed you shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and shall flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessings upon you in your barns and in all that you put in your hand to uh, put your hand to. And he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you, if you will keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth shall see you that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beast and in the produce of your ground and the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse the heavens to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand and you shall lend to many nations and you shall not borrow and the Lord shall make you the head and not the tail and you shall be above and you shall not be underneath and you will listen to the commandments of the Lord your God which I charge you today to observe them carefully and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today to the right or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. All right, great reading. By the way, is your last name Heath? Yes, sir. All right, finally we meet. Thank you. Uh, and, and what's your name? 
Amy. Scott and Amy Heath, everyone. Um, I, I actually, I don't know how, did your brother ever tell you how I met? <clears throat> okay, so his brother Todd used to live, I think, in Evergreen? Yes. And uh, so he's from Colorado, but now he's living in Nashville. And I hadn't heard from him for years. I was working in Grace to You, and I think I sent him a study Bible or something. And we just, I don't know how, I don't exactly remember the connection. But um, I got out of the blue. Uh, my brother is going to be going, uh, moving to Loveland, and we're going to try to find him a church. And so we got connected. So when he was still down in Texas, we talked on the phone. And there is no other church in the whole area he can go to, right? <laughs> Got you guys. Great reading. And and what a great way to start your ministry here at Grace. Now for the people who have been here. Brett, please, please read. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the field, cursed shall you, your basket and your kneading bowl be, cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, with drought, with blight, with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze. The earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be, to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you, shall be, and you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And no one shall, and no one shall frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with the tumors, with the scab, and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart. And you shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall not be, you shall be only oppressed and plundered continually and no one shall save you. You shall be, you shall betroth a wife, but another man shall lie with her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but shall not gather its grapes. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Your donkey shall be violently taken away from before you, and you shall not be restored to you, and, and shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, and you shall have no one to res rescue them. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all day long. And there shall be no strength in your hand, a nation whom you have not known shall eat the fruit of your land and produce of your labor and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually so you shall be driven mad because of the sight which your eyes see the lord will strike you in the knees and on the legs with severe boils which cannot be healed and from them the sole of your feet to the top of your head all right 
Let's um, let's stop there. I, and thank you guys for reading. Uh, very very well done. It, it is it's absolutely horrific, isn't it? And and when I think, I think of this this section when I whenever I think about the Holocaust, whenever I think about them just being decimated, it it's it just brings tears to your eyes when you see all this coming upon them. Hey. Weren't they shouting this from mountain to mountain? Yeah, so you had yeah, that's right. Ebal and you had Mountain Mariah. Yeah, you had Ebal and, and uh, what was it, Gerizim. Gerizim. Yeah, Ebal and Gerizim. Yeah. Blessings on Ebal, right, and, yeah. and uh, curses on Gerizim. Uh, this antiphonal kind of shouting back and forth. And, and man, how horrific that it very literally these came upon them. Yeah. Verse 36, the Lord's going to bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. It's almost like, you want idolatry? You're going to rub your noses in it. You're going to drown in idolatry. It should become a horror proverb, a byword. Um, it says, verse, uh, all these verse 45, all these curses shall come upon you, pursue you, overtake you, till you're destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. Um, Verse 64, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Among these nations you'll find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. The Lord will give you there a trembling heart, failing eyes, a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Oh, man, it's just, it just goes on and on. It is horrible. So this is why. Um, coming back to our topic, you might think, well, didn't we already cover Deuteronomy? Yeah, we did. But this is why the Lord kept sending prophets to plead with Israel throughout their history, graciously calling them back to covenant fidelity, to faithfulness in the covenant. Moses, going on from here in, verse, in chapter 29, he charts the future course of Israel. He predicts in Deuteronomy 29, 25 to 26 that um, they're going to fall into idolatry, that they're going to be exiled to the nations in verses 27 and 28. And it's from exile, though, that the people would wake up in the latter days, that they would realize the prophecy of Moses had come to pass upon them, and they'd look in hope to words of restoration spoken by the prophets, especially those latter prophets. Um, words of restoration would be the only anchors that they would find for their hope, because everything else had been ripped away from them. And sometimes that's exactly what it takes in our lives, right? Everything else to be ripped away on which you rely so that you'll just focus on God's holy word. That's what he wants. Look at Deuteronomy 30. Um, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. You return to the Lord your God, you and your children. Obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. He'll gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. The Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. He'll make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. 
The Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord your God. Keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your cattle, the fruit of your ground. The Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes written in this book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Notice the repetition of heart, soul, heart, soul. And notice too, verse six, that is the promise of spiritual regeneration. To circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. It's almost like in the Old Testament, he's telling them they must love the Lord their God that way, and yet they cannot until their heart is regenerate, until he does this circumcising work on their heart and cuts away. That's new covenant language right there. New covenant language. So the fact that the people kept ignoring the implications of the law and their generational responsibilities, their public duties, their private duties, all that's outlined in Deuteronomy 6, it really revealed their, nature, their, uh, their failure to love God from the heart, and that betrayed the fact that they no longer feared him, if they ever did. In uh, Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 20, I've set before you today, Moses says, life and good, death and evil. Um, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his commandments, his statutes, his rules, you shall live and multiply. The Lord will bless you. Uh, but, verse 17, if your heart turns away, you won't hear. You're drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land the Lord your God, uh, or, or the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give them. Um, now, with all that in mind, um, definition, identification, and then this foundation in the law of Moses, we can now talk about the latter prophets. All right? You excited about that? Yes. Finally, moving on. The Hebrew uh, canon is divided into the law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay? So the law refers to the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The writings, the Ketuvim, refers to Ruth, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. The only ones of those we haven't covered is Lamentations. I think you're doing that, right? So... We're going to all bring your tissue with you when, while we lament as Lee brings forth the tone of that book, because we're going to be weeping that day. Um, you know, this we'll is have, the last Route 66. This is the last one for the summer. What a great way to enter summer. Lamenting. Um, yeah. We'll have a good cry together. Um, the prophets then, the last... Um, division of the Old Testament refers to the rest of the Old Testament, divided into the former and the latter prophets. So here's a question for you, a simple question. Former and latter in relation to what? What event marks the dividing line between former and latter prophets? Exile. Exile. Good, good. Former prophets refers to judges, Samuel, and kings. During the time of the former prophets, uh, the nature of the prophetic ministry prior to and during the monarchy was to act as a mouthpiece to God and uh, of God to the people. 
And during the monarchy, then they were to act as a mouthpiece of God to the king and to the court as well. Uh, prior to the monarchy, the prophets were leaders uh, in the nation. They were providing guidance to the nation of Israel. They were adjudicating cases of justice according to the law of Moses, the stipulations there, uh, case law and all that that's in the law. They were providing teaching to the people, spiritual oversight to the people. So you've got like Moses and Joshua are clearly in this category, uh, as well as Samuel. Samuel's ministry of the former prophets was kind of a, a hinge point as Israel turned from a tribal nation to a monarchy, uh, united under Saul, David, and Solomon. And then that monarchy broke apart. It divided under Solomon's foolish son, Rehoboam. And that was the tribes of Judah. The, um, and then his shrewd and intelligent servant, Jeroboam, Israel, took the 10 tribes to the north. And that, that kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, was never faithful. Um, it, it started and ended with idolatry. It was wicked from start to finish. All the kings, wicked. Judah had some good kings in it, though. The prophets, um, because they had Jerusalem right there in the heart of their, their land, and they went to the temple. The prophets who were active during uh, the period of that, uh, the monarchy time was Nathan. There was also Elijah and Elisha. There was Micaiah. Um, I know there's an unnamed prophet in there. I can't remember his name because he's unnamed. Um, <laughs> the transition time into the time of the, the latter prophets, it came during the period of the divided kingdom as uh, Moses' prediction is starting to come to pass. As everything he said and prophesied about, I know your character, I know your heart, you're going to turn and you're going to turn away from God's law because I've been with you for 40 years. And I know exactly what your character's like. Um, so I know you're going to turn, and, and of course his prediction came to pass, and the curse of the exile became inevitable. So the latter prophets, here are the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12. Okay? Put the 12. We, we call those 12 the minor prophets. The Hebrews didn't think of them as minor in any way, um, he, but they just grouped them into all one book, which we call the 12. I've given you on the back of your sheet some charts that are going to help uh, you keep these kind of things straight. That first one there comes from uh, the MacArthur Study Bible. And uh, I put in just a couple of notes where I just I inserted into the MacArthur Study Bible chart the, the time of the Babylonian exile and then the return from Persia, as you can see there. But you can, if you want to, you can tuck this into your Bible or you can round file it or Put in that stack of papers that Jesus keeps building in your, in your closet that you'll get to one day and say, why do I keep all these papers? Here's one more for that stack. Um, but it is helpful, especially if you're going to do some reading and studying the Old Testament, kind of see where all these things line up. Um, you can also look at this historical background of the latter prophets, um, these, the Judean kings, uh, where it is in 2 Kings that they're mentioned, the dates of their, their reign, and the prophets connected as well, the passages there. So some, you might find some of that helpful again as you're reading. But you can find those char this chart here in the MacArthur Study Bible in the introductory material before Genesis. It's really good stuff. Excellent time. Also, I couldn't reproduce it here, but there's a really, really good timeline um, charted out that shows where the kings are and the prophets and it's really, really good, so very helpful stuff. During the period of the latter prophets, the prophets, um, they continued their historic prophetic ministry, so guiding the people, the nation, back to the law of Moses. They were also adjudicating cases 
uh, of justice according to the law. They were teaching the law to the people, to the court. The prophets, though, they also became, during the time of the latter prophets, they became like social commentators. So it's almost like they were calling people back to justice of things that were practicing as a society that they needed to stop and repent of and turn back to a righteous way of living in their society. So there was almost like social commentators. Almost, almost these prophets were almost like human barometers on the spiritual condition of the nation. What was coming out of their mouth at the time was either an indication of good health or bad health, okay? So they became, uh, as you go through the, the latter prophets, they became increasingly insistent even sometimes shrill and frightening, um, warning the people, calling them back to obedience, and then warning them to the consequences of disobedience. So one final section tonight in your notes. We've we talked about, uh, uh, well, this has to do with the nature of their revelation, their prophetic, which we'll call the prophetic oracle. So we've talked about definition, identification, foundation, distinction. Now we'll talk about revelation, okay? Prophetic oracle. Basically, four categories I've got written down there. Indictment, judgment, instruction, aftermath. These four categories of utterance had different emphases based on the time they were in Israel's history, whether before or after the exile, but basically the same thing. So turn in your Bibles to Malachi. This is the last book in the Old Testament and the only Italian prophet, Malachi. That... Uh, Little known fact about Malachi. Um, but the, the, the very first one is the indictment oracle. And I like, Malachi is like the quintessential example of this indictment oracle. And it's a statement, they're stating an offense against God based on the precept or principle of the law of God that had been violated. Focuses primarily on idolatry, whether also on heartless ritualism or violations of the spirit and intent of the law regarding matters of justice. And again, the classic example here is Malachi. Look at Malachi 1, 2. Right at the beginning, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Um, answering back right away to God. How have, you, how have you loved us, God? Isn't that like an insolent, disobedient child? You just want to take him over your knee. Like, who do you think you are to talk? Look at verses uh, 6 to 8. Um, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, <laughs> it's like, again, it's like a, this is like a junior hire. How have we polluted you? It's like, I am insistent that I'm never going to be under the crosshairs of your conviction. I'm never going to experience any accountability to you, and I'm always going to deflect, deflect, deflect. How have we offered um, polluted, you know, polluted offerings? How have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Words of indictment. Go to chapter 2, verses 13 uh, and following. This is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts you with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been 
faithless, though she is your companion, your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the, God, the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Isn't that an interesting way to put divorce? Covering your garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Do not become faithless. Look at chapter 3, verses 8 and following. Um, will a man rob God? You're, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and contributions? You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, pour down a blessing until there is no more need. I'll rebuke the devourer for you, so it won't destroy the fruits of your soil. And all that, nations will call you blessed. You'll be a land of delight. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And you said, you have said, here's what you've said against me. It's vain to serve God. Oh, really? Futility to serve me? Really? Is that, what is the, what is the profit of keeping his charge or walking as, as, as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now we call the arrogant blessed Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Not for long. <laughs> so that's indictment oracle, okay? Judgment oracle. Basically, I'm not going to go to verses on this one. Basically, in judgment oracle, it's a pronouncement of a sentence. So the indictment's happened. Now it's the sentence and you're judged. You're in trouble. Um, it's going to be carried out in the near future. So this could be like political consequences. It could be defeat in battle, paying tribute to another nation. It could also be judgment of personal consequences, like you're going to die, uh, get your house in order. Many examples of this, but you can write down the book of Nahum. Nahum is all judgment. Um, Nahum prophesied to Nineveh after Jonah prophesied to Nineveh. So Jonah prophesied to Nineveh, Nineveh repented. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. They repented, but then they went right back to their wickedness. God sends Nahum in and says, just give it to him. So he just gives it to him. He just lays it out. You're judge, you're judge, you're judge. It's nothing but judgment. Instruction oracle is the next one. And this is one that expects a response, calling after the indictment, but then it calls the people to repent, return to God. And the, the uh, prophet identifies wicked behavior. He calls for repentance, return to righteous behavior. Again, going back to the law of Moses. If you haven't uh, turned from Malachi, look at how the indictment oracle in chapter 3 became an instruction oracle for those who feared God. Look at verses 16 and following. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make, my, make up my treasured possession. I'll spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Notice how in that calling people back and instructing them, those who are righteous, they're not perfect. Those who are righteous are sinners, but they've repented. So there's provision in the law of Moses 
for the righteous to deal with their sins. That's what makes them righteous, is they're actually following God's prescription to have their sins confessed and, and dealt with. They're repentant people. They're humble people. That's what you see here. The wicked, they're the ones who don't serve God. They're the ones who harden their hearts and don't listen to this. It goes from indictment for them, not to instruction, but to judgment. That's where it goes. Last one is aftermath or oracle. And this anticipates the aftermath of not only indictment, but judgment that's predicted by Moses or any of these prophets. And this is the category, this aftermath, is the category for all restoration promises that are found in the prophets. If you go to like Isaiah 40 to 52, all those chapters, the second half of Isaiah is filled with restoration promises. The exile has happened, and now folks look forward to God's restoration one day, if you'll just trust him, if you'll just repent, if you'll just put your faith in him. Um, I don't have time to read it, but we already read it in Deuteronomy 30, 1 to 10, that God, uh, Moses said, when you're in those lands and exiled, and there you remember, and there you turn, and there you repent, then God is going to come and, even if, it's kind of an anticipated space age, isn't it? Even if some of your people are in the heavens, yeah, you know, on their way to Mars, I'm going to grab them out of their rocket ship and I'm going to pull them back to Earth and I'm going to restore them into the land and bless them. So um, don't be surprised if there's a Jew on the... No, I'm sorry. Um, but Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, uh, the, the New Covenant uh, promise, Ezekiel 36, 22 to 36, that whole section on... Um, spiritual regeneration, all that is for the sake of bringing blessing. That's aftermath oracle, okay? So we don't have time to summarize messages of the latter prophets, but that's what we're going to leave to each presenter to do for us as they go through each of the latter prophets. And uh, I've given you that other chart that gives you, uh, connects the latter prophets to historical background and key kings of Judah prior to the exile, okay? Um, we are out of time, but... Um, just. So, are there any questions real quick? You finished your notes? Yes, Devin, I did. <laughs> I didn't get to read everything I wanted to read, but that's all. Thank you. Are you rejoicing with me? <laughs> you probably better write that down. Aw, <laughs> <laughs> oh, shucks, guys. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, your word. And we want to be people uh, just like Moses described in Deuteronomy 6, who distinguish you from every other God. And uh, we cut out all idolatry of our hearts and lives. We dare not craft a, an image in our own minds. We dare not worship and serve anything else. Uh, but we want to distinguish you from every other God and fear you and you alone. And we want to love you with all of our heart and with all of our soul, with all of our might. Please help us to have um, your words written on our hearts. And please um, be gracious to us to keep us humble and striving after you, repentant when we sin, um, desiring, eager to, uh, eagerly to reconcile to you and reconcile with one another. We pray that our private lives would be uh, marked by devotion to you, love toward you, that our public lives and our community would be marked by our devotion and love for you, and also we have a concern for the future of your church. 
please help us to separate ourselves from the gods of the modern age and give ourselves fully and completely to you. We love you. We thank you for the instruction that comes from your word. And Moses is that uh, foundational prophet. We thank you for what we're about to learn from all the latter prophets who will continue to point us back to the law of Moses, continue to point us back to him, but also point us ahead to the restoration that's going to come in the new covenant and of which we Gentiles are a part. Thank you so much for your grace to us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.